Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Socorum Podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I am Keeper Bob, and with me this evening are Keeper Mark. Hello, everyone. And Keeper Jen. Greetings. And tonight we shed our skins and walk with the animals on the wild side as we examine Neil Hancock's Circle of Light, Book One, Greyfax Grimwald. Jen, do you want to tell us about that? Drawn together by an enchanted summons, three loyal friends, bear, dwarf, and otter, bid farewell to their fair home in the kingdom of Lorini and embark on a magical journey to the fabled world beyond time, a place where glows the ageless circle of light. Along the way, they meet many marvelous friends, including mighty wizard Greyfax Grimwald. But little does the trio realize the dangers that await them, the gloomy border of the Northerland, the green fires of the Palace of Darkness, evil spells and dark enchantments, the dread city of humans, and most fearsome of all, the evil Dark Queen. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Spooky! I love this series of books. Have you read more than this novel? Yes, it's actually why I had recommended it. It's a four-book series, which is hmm. kind of beefy. That's but quite I the read, circle. Yes, I read the first book, gosh, I... I'm going to say in the late 70s, maybe the early 80s. Well, the book was published in 77. I think, I want to say I probably read it around 79. And the moment I discovered the first book, I immediately picked up the other three at the bookstore. And uh, I I absolutely loved the series. So with It's uh, so funny because I read this book and I'm like, I would not have enjoyed this as a kid. I was a precocious child. What? I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, this is is one that slipped past me as well. It certainly came out before the time when I was interested in in that type of high fantasy or that type of novels. And I was probably a decade later. And and I think by that time, this book had really kind of gotten quiet in terms of the circles of people who referenced or appreciated it. It's, It's kind of the sense I got from the background reading I did on it. Yeah, Neil Hancock stuff tends to get not just overlooked, but because there's talking animals in it, it's not taken as seriously as a lot of other epic fantasy. I mean, it it was originally not written as children's books. It was just in the regular sci-fi fantasy section. It's written as, as general sci-fi fantasy of the period, but... And the top of it even says, you know, for all who love the Lord of the Rings. Yes, 
However, when it was reprinted by a different publisher about 10 years ago, it was reprinted and categorized as young adult fiction. Oh. And so, right. And so that certainly doesn't help the perception of the books. But really, it, in my opinion, it is, I mean, it's very Lord of the Rings-like. Yes. I, I don't think anyone will disagree that Greyfax Grimwald is just as interesting and yet annoying as uh, Gandalf the Grey. Oh, yeah. And the circle, certainly, there's there's a lot of... There's a pantheon. Well, yeah. The... It, it feels like a pantheon within the circle, and we get just this little glimpse of each of these characters. So I kind of want to read the other ones, but I... Yeah, that's very interesting because this, that's exactly what it felt like to me when you're reading this novel. And I, I looked at the published publication dates. I think all four of those novels of the series were published in the same year. So he clearly had a concept that stretched, you know, multiple books that he had to break apart for publishing reasons. And this is just like a little window into this world that reveals parts of it but there's all these illusions and he didn't write his version of the Silmarillion is I think the issue because if you if you think about it that's a very strong point of comparison how rich the world is and how much backstory is alluded to there's just not one tome that gives you all that backstory and I can actually see how it would have ended up in young adult fiction some of the character names end up being very basic like the guy with the long hooked nose ends up being Hooknose as his name. You have Lorini, the Lady of the Light. Her evil sister is Dorini, the Lady of the Dark. <laughs> and yeah, okay. Um, well, I think conceptually, I think it's because Lorini is in that language the word for light, and so Dorini is dark, which which sort of makes sense. And and I think it's also, I mean, you think back to Tolkien and when he, the origination of a lot of the stories that he was building into his world, you know, started as children's stories, you know, stories that he would, in, in that time and place, I mean, perhaps you could, you know, say it's more literary or more, you know, invested in sort of the narrative as a form of entertainment. But those stories were really developed and intended for what I think you'd consider young adults, right? And and they, yeah. just, they are, they're sort of that bridge between childhood and adulthood. And then obviously, like more complex themes and things like that have been brought into the adult discussion and investment into the world. But I think a lot of there, there's so much similarities, not just in pure story elements, but I think that the 1970s approach to taking what is intended to be a very mystical, philosophical concepts and in writing a story about them that can be accessible. The implementation here is just really fascinating because it is, you know, this sort of Eastern Buddhist concepts and philosophies that are the background for the story and and introducing that in this form is and I don't know much about you know his approach to this but I can certainly see this being his answer to the way to introduce that to an American audience to a children's young you know young adulthood audience but also I mean it's it's just it it's a complex story in that regard because it is talking about you know, things that are unfamiliar to the audience of the time, or maybe just getting on the edge of familiar to the audience of the time. Yeah. Oh, I, absolutely. Especially the very beginning. I was interested because Broco or Brocco. Okay. The dwarf. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Can't find a pronunciation guide for artificial names. Yeah. <laughs> he has this song that triggers ancient or ancestral memories. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of interesting. And then almost immediately, you're told that they've been gone from the world before time for over 10 generations. And I'm like, um, okay, you lost me. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the mutability of time in different worlds and the whole 
cycle of rebirth between the worlds and the lands. It's one of my favorite parts, and it's also one of the things that makes it hardest to wrap your head around parts of the book. I think that would really be helped if there wasn't this huge sense of secrecy. Hey, you guys are really important, but we can't tell you what you're going to do. Well, and hey, you guys are really important. 15 years later, when the conversation on this world ended and they come back, I'm like, wow, they've been playing house for 15 years. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> travel, uh, planar travel is really bizarre. Well, it's it's because of that differing time stream. And I think you could do a lot of fun stuff with that as a judge, but, but maybe not. The pacing of the book, though, it was hurry up, tell me what you know. Never mind, there's no more time. Go! I'm not giving you any info. But wait, what? And yeah, it's, it certainly it certainly loses that sort of narrative drive or impulse that so much of the Tolkien works are there's an immediate sense of there's been a growing shadow, growing danger, but it doesn't get paused, right? In in terms of like come back 15 years and, and let's see how these people are doing. It's driven by, you know, right. there is a there's a quest. And the quest here is lost at times. I mean it's it's lost to share in the joys of these creatures or these friends. It's it's sort of lost while we focus on the, you know, other sort of major players in the in the arena and it's a very different approach to the sort of questing that you see in most books right where the quest drives everything about the narrative in this case it's almost secondary in a way right where it's you know it's, it's sort of put in the background yeah. or put aside while the focus is really on this recyclability or this reconnection to the past or this always sort of those cyclical nature yeah the cyclical nature yeah. and that plays out too i really i really like those elements where otter for example sort of like the i love otter yeah he's this character that he gets distracted by his animalness but it's kind of fun to see that they all do in some ways but otter's sort of like the one that wants to go and play and sled and he just can't take time to be serious but he's always got this sort of memory of another time and when it was he was a different person or you know when you know, he right. was ulther Right. The king of the otters. And that's one of the things I really enjoy is the fact the rebirth plays out and they're in the land before time and then they're not. And as they cross the river, they're reborn and they have these memories and then they fade and they can be triggered to come back. But they are still at heart the king of the bears, the king of the otters from the time when Despite their the races. Fact that bear can't hold a memory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From the time when their races were dominant before the coming of man. I really dig the playing with time and memory and as a judge i think there's a lot that could be done with it as long as you're not like grayfax though because that sense of secrecy was both maddening and actually harmful to the characters well that's also very very tolkienian and oh, actually yeah, okay. while we're while we're talking about <laughs> tolkien there is one other comparison that needs to be made just like in the lord of the rings during the circle of light books characters will periodically break out into song that makes no sense but they don't take two or three pages no in tolkien they take two <laughs> or three pages but they have at least kind of a steady rhyme and beat scheme and the music in circle of light the songs if you look at the lyrics it's sort of like freeform jazz with no, uneven no. lyric density no it just doesn't translate well yeah. Their original yeah, language. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all over that. The, yeah. the, the original whistling that. and clicking of the otter. Well, exactly. <laughs> much more beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and in some ways, and again, I absolutely love otter. And in some ways, his innocent nature kind of reminds me. It's sort of like a prototype for uh, Tasselhoff Burfoot from Dragonlance. Where when he's doing things, e even in the darker scenes where he's he's wielding a rifle 
because firearms do exist in this series. And he's he's holding this man machine. At the end, he's so innocent, he's not even putting together the action of what he did with mm-hmm. the death that he caused because he just can't conceive of it. Just sort of like Tasselhoff would find things in his pouch, but he would never conceive of the fact that he had stolen them. Mm. Well, that, that's very similar to the first time Bear had to kill to oh, protect yeah. his friend. And the reactions of these characters to death, it's like they're children, because despite having these odd ancestral memories and being shown glimpses of the past by Grayfax, they don't comprehend that they could ever be capable of taking a life. That's a, it's a really interesting that because, you know, the comparison that I was making in my head was it's sort of like the story of Pippin or the story, you know, going back to the Tolkien reference, but it's not because those stories are all about gaining adulthood or gaining maturity or gaining a hero status. And a lot of what... I don't know. They are always hungry. They are, yeah, that's true. I mean, there's a lot of similarities because... They, you know, see, they, and that's this, what hobbits see. There's another Tolkien kind of comparison. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's this idea of innocence and being corrupted or innocence being, you know, whatever. But in those stories, a lot of it is finding the inner strength, right, to to overcome the darkness. And in this case, it's that innocence is preserved in a way from that childlike aspect that you actually want to go back to, right? You don't want to be the killer. You don't want to be the one who's the hero. You want to survive this and rescue your friends and be playing again, which is a really... Playing or go back to smoking your pipe. Or exactly. Yeah. Or it's a really attractive sort of thing. And in Tolkien, is this idea of innocence lost. Once you discover sort of that inner strength, it's not like you can regain the knowledge that you had as a child. It, it is a lot more about becoming that adult form of yourself. And in these cases, these creatures have already been adults. And this is their childhood form in a way that is a purification. That's the entry or gateway to the next world, right? Is is sort of like overcoming the killing, overcoming those things so you can cross into the world of lights. You know, that's the pathway to it in sort of a Buddhist sense, right? Well, and also I think that this really kind of moves forward with the concept of the citizen soldier. You pick up arms because you have to, but you are not a warrior. You're not a professional soldier. You're not a professional killer. It's something you do because you have to, Mm -hmm. and then it's something you put away. And I think that's very important. And they are absolutely referred to as man machines. Yes. Because they are creations of man, and men are the only ones capable of such deceit and evilness. I I think Mark and I had been talking about this before the show. It took a little bit to get into the pattern and the rhythm of this book. Like we'd get 20 or 30 pages in and then life would happen and we'd go back to it a week later. And then we'd read like the last, what, 200 pages of this (laughs) 350 page paperback (laughs) all at once. We're like, oh, well, that was easy once we had the time to do this. The beginning of this book can be a barrier. And I think, Bob, you alluded to this. And, and Jen and I, you, you know, when we first encountered it, it was like, what is the story here? There's this sort of reference to a calling that's not really clarified. They're crossing a river and sort of prancing and dancing as they playfully go along. But there's always this tug at their hearts. But there's no story. It's And, and it's not until you get a good quarter of the way through the book that you start encountering sort of the the structures of the narrative that's going to compel the rest of the pages. And if readers are coming into this, I I definitely say, if you're putting it down, come back to it later, because it it is worth completing. And it does tell a really engrossing story from the point of view of a different take on high fantasy and a different take on meditation and and, and sort of philosophy than I think you get from other um, appendix and works that we've read. And it only gets better, darker, and more action-filled as as the series progresses. I mean, I, I'll be honest, I tuned out the minute Grayfax made his appearance, because he was <laughs> so quick to criticize and admonish these characters. 
instead of answering any questions that might have helped them. Much like Gandalf the Grey. Correct. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and it's also odd that this novel, this first in the series, is named after he's the title character, but he plays a somewhat peripheral role to the central friendship that you follow. Yeah. Which, you know, you think in comparison, The Hobbit, well, that is about The Hobbit. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. A, it's a, it's, yeah. And, it, and it's kind of this Gandalf the Grey figure that, you know, you do get a point of view narrative from him. And so that's interesting to see, but... You know, it's the story's not about him changing. He's an ageless wizard with grand powers. He has he's he's in this pantheon of other other wizards. So there's this sense of he has to solve things by going and getting help and seeking aid and stuff like that. But the Circle of Light is about these three core friends, and I'm interested to see if the later books in the series expand or the focus more, or if they they stay focused on these three friends and they're sort of shifting adjustments and and right. And will it all focus on the Circle of Light pantheon? Or do we get do we get more of bear and otter and dwarf? We get more of all of that in the series leading up to the last book, Squaring the Circle. And I really dig the Circle of Light concept, the, the conceit of all of these individual beings who are either wizards, patrons, or gods. And you're never really sure which they are, but there's that moment during the battle when the spell is cast that reaches far back across time to pull this golden warrior to their presence to stand and fight against the second right. of, of Dorini. And well, there's that moment. And it moment. was the son of uh, Cephas Starkeeper. Yes. That was summoned. The world itself, I mean, Circle of Light is, is four books. He did two other series, The Wilderness of Four and... Uh, I want to say the Windermere Circle. And both of those were four books. Well, And then Windermere would tie back into this? Yes. All, well, all of it is Because Atlantan yeah. Earth is Windermere right. from what I got. And then Cypher was the alternate plane. Yes. And then he wrote a standalone called Dragon Winter. That was actually the next book that came out after the Circle of Light. And all of it is set in the same world. And it, it changed a bit. But uh, And when you were speaking about forms... The other thing that's kind of interesting, at least to me, is, you know, you've got the king of the bears, you've got the king of the otters, and we're moving among men, so they shift so that they appear to be human, so they can pass among the humans even though they are not. And I kind of dug that as a way that you could introduce characters like this into a game without just having walking, talking bears all over the place, because you just right. never know. You never know what someone does, even like a were-creature. You never know what the werewolf looks like when they're on the street. You never know if one of these ancient animals is moving among you because they have the ability to hide themselves. And yet they're still not the most evil characters oh. or most deceitful. Oh, the no. The scene at the Shamrock pub, that shook me a little bit. The betrayal of Wheatflower. Where he enlists his keeper of the horses to go and kill Bear and steal the, the gems that he created. Uh-huh. Well, that gets to the point of we, we talk about humans and their creations. And, you know, humans are in this land are a very between worlds peoples, right? They're, they're not the pure animals that are represented by the, the animal friends or the dwarf characters. They're sort of this, this hybrid of they can do very bad things. You can, they can create weapons. They can have wars. Or they can be good they can, you can even find friends among them. You know, there's, there's some talk about dwarfs saying they're still good in, in the world, you know, in terms of it's not like it was before, but they are still good creatures. But they're not the agents of darkness, you know, like the pure sort of 
I guess, orc and troll-like creatures that are created by uh, Dorini, right? In, in terms right, of the- but Dorini's creations, if you look, were all once men. Right. They're sort of like the orcs of... <laughs> getting going to talk <laughs> It's the corruptibility of man. Except for Sun Eater and Fire Slayer. Yes. But when you talk about the, the majority of the creatures that you see, and again, that, there's that cyclicalness, almost that dharmic belief in, in reincarnation, and you come back, you know, your new form is based on your last, and the men that have slid have become these horrible things and, and are used that way. Yeah, the coming of men overall in the series is not looked upon highly by everybody else, but men themselves are taken with, at this point, kind of a grain of salt. Yeah, yes, there's, there's good, there's evil, but boy, when they're evil in these books, mm-hmm. they're evil. I will say I picked up a tip from this book because the colonel under General Greymouse was never named, and he was just this side of villain. And same with the officer who came to take away the poor guy that was set upon to go try and kill Bear at the inn. The officer was shady and dirty, obviously, but he was never named either. And of all of the characters in the book, even the little tiny bit characters got named. Even if they were killed that scene, they still were named in some fashion. But those two characters were not. And that leads me to, hmm, not all NPCs have to have names. Not all NPCs have to be memorable, villainous characters. They really can just be the unnamed henchmen. You don't need to build a huge story around them. That is true. Maybe the players don't need to know every single little thing. They're not reading the book from the omniscient point of view. So, yeah, it was a good reminder. Their title almost becomes their name, and that title itself is enough to, in part you know, some element of them, right? He's the colonel, but he's not named, but he's also ambitious because he's second in command. He's a military figure, etc. But yeah, you're right. Well, and there's that whole statement, there is more for him to play in our story, but for weal or woe, even I do not know. So, you know, Greyfax knows about this guy, knows he's not all that great, but knows that, that there's something important about him. You know, he has Gray a role to play. Well, no, Greyfax actually speaks of him in a conversation oh. in the Elsewhere. Oh, jeez. When, when okay. <laughs> and of course, betrayal is kind of a running theme. I mean, there's Credden the Dwarf, who is the last survivor of Rocco's kingdom, or the, the, the kingdom from, from which Rocco came. And he goes there, and Credden's the last one, and much like Michael Curtis's Glitter Doom, he has really become corrupted by greed. <laughs> and the dark powers. And so there's this running theme of betrayal. I think it's it's effective because the characters are animals that are seen as innocent more than anything else. Because if they were hard-bitten, jaded humans, they wouldn't fall for any of this to begin with. But because they're innocent, because you can believe in their innocence, it all works and flows. And one of the things I did want to comment on is that there are some jarring interruptions to the, the tone in some ways for me as a reader that really take it out. Like, for example, I think that while effective in terms of transitioning or translating the sort of innocence of the creatures, there's a lot of these moments of like, slapstick and comedy that almost feel like they're a little out of place once the narrative gets started with Dwarf falling backwards into the river that triggers this whole sequence of events that, you know, becomes him chasing off on a horse that gets him into the ambush. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a style choice of the writer or if that's him trying to preserve some of the childhood elements of the story. There's the Dark Queen's portrayal is this very sort of like dripping and evil sort of tone. And there's no mistaking that she is the villain of this. Right. And it's one of the things that you want to set up this very 
very broad brush of good versus evil, but there's it leaves other than the men, you know, they span that middle gray area. There's not a lot of that in the book. It's it's a lot of it is the choice between darkness or light. It's not a choice between well, I think it also sets up the concept that the truest and purest good is also potentially the least prepared to stand against evil. Not because it doesn't have a desire to, but because to do so requires the tools of evil. Killing is not a innately good act, but in warfare, if someone is coming to kill and eat your village, that is what is required. But that's not something that the purest good creatures even initially think about. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so so the tone does bounce a bit, but I think it's kind of showing that whole concept of, well, what are we fighting for? Well, we're fighting for being able to go home, smoke a pipe, and go down my mudslide, because that's all I really want to do. I just want to go home, but to do that, I have to do this first. And in the meantime, we're cold and hungry. Yeah, I, I, I mean, there, I think, <laughs> there is, I, I think there's also this Eastern philosophy elements within the story that... That home is just a temporary place. The true home is in the heart of the light, as it were, where it's not just, it's whatever you idealize, right? But it's really about overcoming or shedding the darkness completely so that you exist in whatever the, the land of Windermere or the land or the, or the children of the light, you know, that, that you're in the very heart of that. You, and you've gone through cycles and of being and, and, and enough such that you, you can cross into that heart and stay there and you don't have to be called back or you don't have to be part of the darkness anymore. But I, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Cause that, that is. Well, and then at the heart of Doromir's evil, isn't just that she's marching across the world to conquer it. It's she's marching across the world to conquer it, to prevent people from moving moving from world to world. Right. She is this force of not just of darkness, but of stagnation, of preventing people from being able to return to the light or to better themselves. It's essentially, you know, if, if you achieve the light, if you move into the light, you know, you've got that never-ending state, but it's it's bliss, but it's unchanging. And in the darkness, she brings change that comes without enlightenment. And so there there can never be pleasure or joy in that state of stasis it's a very different philosophical uh, i'm a little torn on that because i got something different out of the book when even the lady of light herself was saying well we can't always change fate it's like there were so many references to well as it is written or as his will as is his will Mm -hmm. and i'm uh, okay pick a religion guys (laughs) (laughs) Pick, pick a theology or, or philosophy. Well, it, it sets up that there's something beyond the circle, which is itself you know, something that plays out further in the other books. But there's something beyond the circle. There is there is the light. Okay, Aslan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, gets, it does get into that. This is yet one age among many ages that are repeating a cycle of events that are ordained, but the repetition, the struggle itself is part of life. You know, that's what life is, essentially. There always is a a return to the beginning. There's always an end to the current cycle. That's very Eastern, right? That's very uh, Hindu. That's, you know, it's just, and it's one of these things that characters on one side of that always know that there has to be something on the other side because it's always you know, part of that. And it, it does kind of give this, you know, there, while there is a sort of like light or darkness there, there is this sort of like understanding that, you know, to use Michael Curtis's favorite word, 
chiaroscuro effects, you know, from of life, right? That there's this this shading, right? That that is a, in a sense the journey. It's interesting just because I think you see that because the, the when they're at most peace, it's uh, this idea that I, I, it kind of goes back to Tolkien again, right? Because I never, as as a reader, Tolkien ever thought that that end state of the elves going off to some wonderful sort of blissful place at the end of their lives was very appealing. It's it's just like a retirement. It's really the interesting things that you get during life that are evident through otter and bear and dwarf's friendship. You know, the fact that, I mean, that 15 years, they do a lot of like friendship building and bonding and, and have fun. But there's also work and struggle and things they like that. They get a cat. They get a cat. <laughs> 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 yeah, but, it, but it, I mean, that is like a little encapsulation to say, you know, even though they're in this world, this sort of world of both darkness and light, that's life. That's the interesting elements of the most interesting time as, as they are as portrayed as, as characters with each other. So so did the two of you enjoy it? Yes. Once it got moving. All right. See, yeah, it's, once I was allowed to sit down and read it because I didn't do the audiobook thing this time. I think apart from some of the jarringness of the sort of narrative choices, I think it has a lot to say. And the character's... I really enjoyed listening to Otter and Bear and Dwarf stories and seeing who they were. I would be interested to read the future books, if only to find out the rest of those five sacred secrets. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think we only really got one of them, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. I think that sense of betrayal is sort of hinted at in terms of like one of the other secrets has been sort of hoarded by this, you know, one of the other wizards. It's kind of like that Saracen or mm. yeah, yeah, element that that sort of introduces itself. But it's like you know the the fact that betrayal can happen even to the animals, even to the wizards. You know, it's thematically running through the, the story. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you there. Well, since we're talking about since we're talking about the secrets, shall we move to things to stand? Sure. Mm-hmm. I got a few. Why don't you start? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, me this time? Yeah. I kind of liked the idea of the door runes, because as Dwarf said, they've never built a door that doesn't talk to me. I love that. Of course, there's the, the Dwarf song that stats for that could be amazing. Or the... Iron-crowned horse demon thing that breathed a poison gas that deadens minds and hopes. Brugnoth. Brugnoth, the steed of Dorky. That description, yeah. Breathed out a choking grayish poison gas over the field. Oh my god, just just the description. I mean, this is the bad guy's horse, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's a horse, and it's got... Yeah, definitely need static. I admire the respect for the steeds that all of the other major characters had and the respect for other animals. I did find it interesting that there were no other bears or otters ever encountered. So they were talked about like the, I think Bear talks about meeting some of his kin and, and maybe not having a good reception or maybe not there. You know, they would be different because they were part of this world. I think it was alluded to, if I remember correctly, because they're just animals at this point. They've been in this world so long that, they, yeah, that this world is yeah. not populated with talking animals. It's it's That's the very rare exception. Yes. Tis not Narnia. And uh, I know you'll get into who and what Kakagor was, mm. but he sends out, and I love this passage, he sent out a slimish green-colored breath that deadened wills of man or beast that drowned them in a waking, nightmare-ridden sleep and made all but the most powerful his prisoner to do with as he liked. Yeah. 
and they refer to it as his doom shroud. Mm. I'm like, ooh, that's lovely, that's dark, and uh, I'll round out my list with... These critters really love their honey, and there's different types of honey. <laughs> so maybe there's like different bonuses for some of them. Oh, there's yeah. the black bark honey, marsh honey, and <laughs> there's yeah. the wildflower. And oh, well, I've got a little bit of comb in my tin here, just a little bit of honeycomb. And it's almost like candy for kids. It has this addictive quality to it. It's not just a Winnie the Pooh thing with Bear not being able to get enough. Well, no, but if Otter's, you... Otter's got to have his berries, but honey is even better. But certain types had different levels of reactions. You know, sometimes Bear would just go into this drunken stupor <laughs> afterwards. And other times... Yeah, it's okay. It became like a vehicle for their innocence in a way, too, because, you know, whenever they were offered yeah. something more potent or something made of meat, you know, it was always this, you know, they preserved their innocence because they were the ones that went back to honey or they went back to berries or they went back to, you know, something that was different from the man food. And the honey that the men offered right. them was very poor quality, even though even though that's, yeah. that's considered well, like yeah. great. Well, and, but and the tea was food okay. as a whole is certainly a, a statable thing. You know, they talk about the soothing powers of dwarf cakes and of of dwarf tea. You know, the healing properties and uh, see, I'm just bringing it back to episode one with the Adderkorn. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's like Adderkorn. I bet I could find a recipe for something like a dwarf cake. But but Jen, I love that idea of stabbing different versions of honey based on its source. I think that's a that's a wonderful idea. That is, I think that's that's really kind of fun. What about you, Mark? So there's like this sort of like grandness that we didn't talk about in describing the novels that it transcends what you get in Tolkien when you start looking at these figures that are mighty godlike figures. And, and, one, and one of those sort of like evidence of that is that, you know, the wizards are traveling between planes and stars. But, you know, Sun Eater, this character of a wolf who eats yeah. stars, right? He, he's this huge planet, mythical size ghost-like creature or wraith-like creature that eats stars <laughs> that talk talk about your 10th level adventure quest you know in terms of a big bad that's like it's something i'd love to see statted as a higher level way of bridging yeah it's in the in the way that the, the wizards bypass they trick him into eating <laughs> eating a yeah. dead star and it, not only do they trick him into eating a dead star to distract him but they infuse it with their mocking voices you know so that it's the rest in his belly for the rest of time it's this like idea of this like this it's going from this very sort of focused on these animal creatures and their mundane activities to, oh, suddenly we're encountering a wolf who eats stars. And you know, I, I love that aspect to it. And trying to stat that, I think, would be a good challenge, but also just like kind of echoes back to the calling of DCC, where first level, you can be thrown into anything, right? You, you have to be prepared to encounter the Lords of Chaos and be called into these grand quests. And, and I sort of like that idea of statting uh, Sun Eater or, or those grand creatures. Yeah. Oh, man, talk about a recurring villain. Yeah. And, and then we... That eventually <laughs> you can face. Yeah. It, Maybe. Maybe. And he's, he's, he's not killable, but he's certainly, you know, you can do things to, to trick him, obviously. Yeah. You can face him in the funnel, but it won't go well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really like, you know, the, the, the scene where Natone, the golden figure, is called forth and he's fighting the Prince of Darkness. That really sort of echoed that big trouble in Little China when they're getting their rings out and they're summoning these these ghost-like figures above them to have a battle in place of the real battle. Or of that Earl Otis painting where oh, the wizards yeah. are combating each other mm -hmm. by summoning these uh, avatars, right, you know, to, to fight in their place. 
And that, that sort of really reminded me of the Earl Otis image in, in terms of darkness versus light or, or some aspect of well, that. Well, see, for me, since Dorakai was actually there, True. to me, that almost read like casting the Eternal Champion. Right, it's right. summoning that across time, which is something you can do in DCC. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and, it's, and it's not just the, the Eternal Champion sort of brings forth this human warrior. This is almost like and summon Avatar, summon you know, eternal champion that's some, yeah. some sort of form. And I think you could do something. Patronus. Yeah, you yeah. could do something like that where it becomes a surrogate for the battle that's in place and how you tie that into the combat mechanically would be kind of fun because maybe it imparts some effect on the battle depending on whether the surrogate strikes a true blow or the, you know, essentially it takes on an element oh, yeah. of the battle itself and becomes a way to affect the battle. So I kind of like that idea. It just represented sort of that big avatars fighting each other. Well, yeah, and that, and as a mechanic, that actually makes a great way to be able to connect your players to the larger battle that's going on, allow them to have an impact on it without having to break out TSR's battle system. Right, exactly. So that'd be kind of, yeah, that'd be kind of fun too. There were a lot of like little magical things that came up, but were never really detailed. The sacred sticks that... Grayfax uses to, I guess, see into other places or other events or communicate, I think, with some of the elders. Like he, he burns these like sort of like sacred sticks, he calls them to read them. There's the signaling powder that Dwarf talks about using with otter and bear that you put in the fire and it's this way of communicating across the distance. Yeah, and you have to wonder how J.K. Rowling gets some of her ideas, right? <laughs> right. I, and, <laughs> and I thought that was a, a fun thing to sort of throw in there as a sort of minor magical write-up. You talked about this, Jen, but the idea is dwarfs, they can read mechanical things and understand them. So they are natural affinities for things like lockpicking, right? So it's almost like the, yeah. giving them a thief skill. You could have a class of a lore master dwarf who has some elements of what Broco has. You know, he's he's able to yeah. cast spells, but he also has these kind of thief-like abilities too, because he understands mechanical things. He understands the secrets of the mechanical things, you know, not necessarily reading runes. He's reading the runic secrets, you know, in a sense, which I think is kind of a fun thing. to. Oh, nice. Nicely put. Yeah. yeah. And then last are some of the creatures they encounter. I know we talked about sort of the grand creature and, and there's the, these other creatures that breathe poison. But the idea of wraith wolves, I think is what they're called in the books at one point. Yeah. Which... You know, is is kind of getting into the Tolkien-esque race and things like that. But the idea of these almost shadow-like counterpoints to the animal creatures we see, they're wolves, but they're animalistic in, in some sense, but they're not pure of heart. And how to balance out what we see from otter and bear and dwarf, you know, in some way. I think that'd be kind of fun to write up as a stat is if you're going to be going, if you're going to be having a player character as an animal, which we will probably get into, you know, the idea of these wraith wolves are sort of like the twisted forms of them. What about you, Bob? Well, first of all, I thought that Dorani, Queen of Knights, or Lorani, the Queen of Light, would make great patrons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Quite possibly very active patrons. And Jen, Jen mentioned, of course, there's uh, Kakor or Kakikor. C-A-K-G-O-R. You guys yeah. figure it out. <laughs> you know, he, he's this monstrous wolfine thing. And the language that's used with him just makes you want to write him. I mean, when he goes after the trio and smashes his way into Bear's cave, just, you know, exploding the door and exhaling this noxious green gas. And then he runs across Otter's River and it turns to gray ice beneath him as he goes. And then he just 
burns down the entire forest in his rage. Again, this this gets back to Sun Eater. It's this huge, well, potent Catcore creature. Was the child of Sun Eater yes. and Fire Slayer, who I believe right. was a. 30 headed oozing something or other. I didn't get <laughs> much more than that. a lot. Yeah. Monsters will do yeah. that. <laughs> and it's kind of like this lineage, sort of like you know, Fenris Wolf. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this giant, massive, mythical beast, and then it's offspring, but they're not just smaller versions of each other. They're all unique in their own way. And so he and, and kind of that lineage, I think, are all worth statting. The Gorgoloks really kind of interest me. You know, they're described as troll-like. They're the half-man, half-beast, and they're flesh-eaters. I mean, at one point, you know, they talk about how they attacked a village and they killed and ate everyone there. But as you read further, they were once men. And so it's this corrupted state. They're not, you know, like chaos mutant beast men. It's the darkness that has grown within them that has transformed the exterior. And I think that would be something that'd be really kind of neat to stat. Um, as I mentioned with, with Jen, you know, Dorakai and, and Brugnath. It's the horse! Oh my god, that bad guy's horse! <laughs> <laughs> he was more inspirational than the prince himself, yeah. In the form of a horse demon, yeah. And then there's some of the stuff that is certainly a spell, but is never really gone into. Uh, there was there was one, uh, and in my notes, I even put whatever this spell is, because uh, the the passage is it was more than a voice, and the clear sky filled with frightful figures of riders cloaked in terrible white robes and gilded helms that did not sparkle, but burned deep within themselves as if the flaming light was far away beneath their smooth, terrible surface. The horses were mighty beasts that straddled mountains, and nearer, rising tall, a shimmering, pale, ivory-colored tower that rose upward and into the farthest visions, and near its top, it curled into the shape of a flaming turtle with a pointed shell of brilliant silver. This was just sort of the, hey, something's going on, let me throw up a quick uh, spell to like impress and, and scare people. <laughs> yeah, I want I want whatever that spell is. Um, okay. <laughs> I mean, that, I mean that, that richness of text and the idea that there's two wizards are speaking and they know they're being observed, and so sort of like the way an animal will puff itself up, the wizard casts this spell and creates these figures in the sky, this ethereal army of of giants <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah that's that's more than just you know illusion or cantrip uh that's that that's something different that that's something to truly impress and uh, as a spell concept and there's a lot of other examples like that i think there's some really good spell conceits woven through the entire series yeah i agree agreed so since the series is many many things how about uh, some props and audio i think the Potential for statting up anything related to magic within this book is pretty much unlimited. Down to otters' pipes that put people to sleep, and he didn't know that yeah. it would do that. <laughs> Whoops! So, um, or the songs themselves. Yeah, yeah, and you know, right off the bat, the pipes would have to be in my list of little prop suggestions. Nothing big, just a little, like maybe a small pan flute or something. Books. Books, 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 books. Bear loves <laughs> books. Most particularly the ancient book of Beardom. And <laughs> Otter has a family book. And the dwarf has a handful of family books, including one with some spells. You know, a little yellow felt hat would be fun. 
and you have to turn it X number of times for each spell. That's the somatic component, right? Yeah. And, you know, have a nice tea. Get some honey and berries and just... <laughs> Be civilized for a change how, instead of that, rotting meat. That, how, how <laughs> instead of plates there will of be rotting no meat. Doesn't do tonight. There will be berries and tea <laughs> and dwarf cakes and, and coffee. They did drink coffee. That is true. And you know, if you're going to do books, you could even you know these days with all sorts of fonts, you could put together a book that appears to be handwritten, and then you know put some bear paw prints on the front. Because when we're first introduced to bear and all the books, they're like, "Have you read all these?" It's like, "I think so. Maybe. Um, I maybe I wrote some of them. Uh, I'm not really sure anymore." Yeah. And, and so, you know. Bear's <laughs> grasp of the passage of time. It was kind of like cats having problems with object permanence. Um. Well, well, think about it. He's a creature that he already hibernates, and how he hibernates in a world that. You know, time is... Yeah, no, that's... Well, uh, no, that, that happened before crossing the Calyx Day. I know, but day. it's just... It's just... No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, Bear might have been my favorite. <laughs> see, I think right off the bat, you need a plush otter. <laughs> otters. Because otters Because cool. otters, yeah. Uh, now, granted, in reality, otters are little river murder hobos, <laughs> but, but at this point, not it's the not little babies. They go around like little kittens, but yeah. Like little kittens. When they found the uh, the swan-tipped walking stick, when they pulled that out of the ruins of the Dwarven Kingdom, a nice wooden walking stick with a carved head would be a nice prop. Runestones. There's so many references to runes and runic magic, and you can go to pretty much any, well... Okay, there's not that many real bookstores left, but you can go to the the New Age section of of any surviving bookstore and pick up, like, Ralph Blum's Book of Runes that comes with a set of runestones. Little tins come into play quite a bit. Yeah. You could just buff the paint off an Altoids tin and put something in it that rattles and... It'll be just like, you know, the the stashes you'd find in your grandparents' houses with, like, the little Sucrets tins. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's got, like... Three safety pins, right. a button, and like a Sumerian coin that you have no idea what they were doing with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And exactly. then I I really struggled trying to think of a basis for music for something like this. Hmm. And I finally kind of went back around to, you know, this was written in the 70s. And so I went with kind of the 70s feel, um, Steel Eye Span, their song Royal Forester, the Calling On song, even Blackjack Davy. Mm. You know, yeah. Steel Eye Span was part of that 70s British folk oh, revival. Yeah. And I think that would be really uh, well fitting. I would add uh, Steel Eye Span's Donald of Gallivry to that list it's got the uh the tension build up too yeah you know jethro tull had their album uh songs from the wood songs like you know, hunting girl and the whistler mm. because you know, normally if you're running an adventure you know the whistler is is really a beat and, and and that doesn't normally fit when you're like doom doom <laughs> doom doom but it it fits for the circle of light that lightness in the background at times really fits and then moving a little bit more towards present day uh lorena mckinnett's the the lady of shallot from the visit and and things of that nature but really yeah maybe music by like pentangle but hit those 70s early 80s british folk 
revival acts, and I think you'll find some really, really great stuff that flows with the feel. Because this doesn't have like a strong Celtic feel. You know, it, it, there's not a lot of overtones that are really easy to, to grab onto musically, but it still has that general fantasy feel. And for better or for worse, if you're in the United States, general fantasy feel is normally European default. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And so taking that as a base and using the, the stuff from the 70s from that period, I think you can have some great results. <laughs> what about you, Mark? I'll, I'll just kind of leave this as a little anecdote because when I was reading this book, I also had just shown my kids The Last Unicorn, the, the animated mm. show or animated movie from, I think it's like the early 80s. Yeah. And I, mm-hmm. like when I kept thinking of music, or I kept thinking of America and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's sort okay. of that melancholic sort of questing, you know, of, of longing and it, it doesn't fit the novel at all, but that's what I couldn't get out of my head. <laughs> I think it's really appropriate to some of the tones. It is in some parts, yeah, because I mean, there's some parallels, you know, in terms of like the animals and the human kingdom and, and those sort of things, but it definitely is more token than Circle of Light uh, in terms of how it fits. And it's very period, you know, it's just, it's one of those things that every time I hear that, it's like, Oh yeah, I know. I know exactly when this was produced, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is very true. Um, the rest of it really just a lot of it is focused on the food because the idea of having a proper meal or a you know the honey and the the comfort of surrounding yourselves with and, and bear obviously is driven a lot by his hunger, but that sort of imparting the sense of the story is what I got out of the rest of it. It wasn't so much about, about yeah. props. I mean, you could do things with like, there's the Dragonstone pendant that is probably used later in the series quite, quite a bit, but you only get sort of like a hint at, in terms of like what it actually is. There's the silver bell that Grayfax places that's stolen by the Raven, which is this, you know, <laughs> never brought up again, but the idea that that's a way to call for help in times of need, but you know, there's... Well, it was brought up again in the fact that Raven was too embarrassed to admit that he'd taken it. Right, but it doesn't have any kind of, <laughs> any kind of impact on the story, right? Because Grayfax eventually finds them uh, without it. You're right. The food aspect. Crab apple pie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not crab and apple. It's a, no, it's a type I, I, of apple. No, I get that. It is, it, is not, it is not crustacean fruit pie. No, I think that would be Hostess's least popular yeah. pie. <laughs> but, what, oh, but when I'm running like Call of Cthulhu, for example, if I'm running Horror on the Orange Express, it's the idea of putting food out that represents the city the players are in is is always like one of those fun sort of things that I love doing in, in that sort of gaming environment. It's not meant to be a role-playing aspect. It's just meant to be a way of experiencing the, the game session in a little bit richer detail and texture. And I think that's that's really what I drew away from this book is that food becomes an important thing for the characters, but it's also a, a gateway into uh, a setting, right? And so I think you could do a lot with that in terms of like a Well, yeah, and scent is such a powerful uh, memory trigger and memory storage point that really helps your players sort of catch on to a particular feel. You don't have to be role-playing while you're eating a curry, but it still might make you more more aware or more prescient of playing in right. India. Yeah, no, I, I totally dig that. I had not thought of that, but yeah, no, I, I grew <laughs> on that. Now I want to play in Mark Cthulhu <laughs> game apparently he caters. You, you know I and, giggled uh, <laughs> a little when you, when you mentioned horror on the Orient Express, I did have to giggle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mark Brunner's Call of Cthulhu game is catered. I want to go. Well, yeah, it's, it, you could you could talk to Paul and Brenda about that. Yeah. yeah. They, they play in that game with me, so. 
Nice. Well, since since we're already talking about adventures, why don't we move to some uh, some inspirations and reskin? Yeah, this this so I couldn't get out of my head, and this is not DCC, but it's GCC adjacent. And if you haven't picked it up or haven't had a chance to play it, Rangers and Rabbits uh, adventure setting. It's it's really just a AD and D slash original D and D with animal characters, and he does the illustrations. He's you know it's it's. That's J.V. West, right? Yeah, sorry. It's a J.V. West, Rangers and Rapids, which you can get uh, on RPG Now as a downloadable PDF. I had the opportunity to play this with a GM who introduced me to DCC. He, you know, took us into this system. It is a lot of fun. And it just, it has so many variations on animals that are, you know, each of them have different skill sets and and class abilities, but you're using the classes from the original D&D. And it's just a... And for anyone not familiar, J.V. West is a uh, an illustrator. Yes, that within the DCC yes. community. Yes, yeah, and and he's got a. I think Black Pudding is that right? Is is his zine that he puts out? Yeah, which is it's filled with yeah. his illustrations and and character creations and and rules and things like that. But check this out; it's it's really fun. And if you want to play in an animal setting, that's easy to put in the original D and D you know, rule set, it's easy to translate to DCC and you can take those characters and make them classes, you know, and, and you go, or just make them the, the, they have those stats and abilities and you become the thief or the, the wizard or et cetera. That's, that's oh, a fun, fun. Um, the other thing that this made me think of, which strangely in, in some ways is black sun death crawl, which not uh. necessarily st- <laughs> because, you know, I'll tie a lot of things with Black Sun Death Girl, but I admit that. Never well, the, I so I'm, I'm looking forward so, to hearing about this one, Mark. Oh, I get so it. So James really. McGeorge's, you know, very dark. There is nihilistic, you know, and there's no, there's no end to your suffering. I mean, this matches for me the philosophy elements of the uh, the Circle of Light series in that this is an L, an aspect of rebirth an aspect of suffering that you these characters presumably would have had to go through at some aspect of their lives or some point in their lives or it's the beastmen you know that are uh, the gorlocks and, and the creatures like that that's how they are born you know it's getting to that crawling from the birth spawn to your death in this endless suffering that's that's an element of buddhist philosophy that you know that sure. that's that's what I was I was getting from that. I don't know if you're reskinning it or you're just saying that that's one part of a campaign arc where maybe you start at the very bottom and then the next world you go to and it is you know marginally better or the next world you go to is incrementally better based on your actions. That would probably not make for a All very three. satisfying campaign <laughs> <laughs> in, in some ways, but it would it, it would be a storytelling tool to introduce your characters to maybe as a flashback, maybe as a... You could do it as an interlude. As an interlude, right. So that this this becomes... Yeah. You, your characters, your heroes as they are now, they are suddenly sort of recast and it's triggered by some event or some memory. Or song, song. right. Yeah. <laughs> Ancestral memories. Yeah, and, and, yeah there and we you go. just do that as a way of being able to play Black Sun Death Crawl without it being the, the setting for your, your, your group or your campaign. Right. And all three characters lamented of how long is this going to take? How much longer? This is useless. Can we just go home? So I totally get that. <laughs> 
essentially at the end of the day, they were ordinary good people. They just wanted to live their lives. And, and so is, did we until so we got thrown in with, you know, dead babies yeah. do a D3 damage. Come on. <laughs> but it's so it's so different from you're a reaver. It's so different. It's the zero level characters that go out on the funnel, but then they go home. Mm-hmm. They, they're not interested in, in fighting all these things. They do it because they have to. I Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, now, now, okay, I, I will concede. Now <laughs> I can see a black death, sun death crawl. And I will. I love black sun death crawl. But uh, <laughs> I had not, uh, that had not crossed my mind at all. So what's on your list? Yeah. <laughs> well, the first thing I thought of, and Jen and I have both done playtests of a couple of the adventures, and we haven't played all of them, but Michael Curtis has been working on the Phantasmagoria series. Oh, and, yeah. And, you know, I can't really go into a lot of detail because I don't want to spoil something that's in playtest, but there's these dreamlike qualities of that setting for those adventures, I think really would kind of jive well with the world before time of the book and the land of light of the book almost like a ring of vaseline around the camera lens while filming sort of 70s etherealness i i think i think the phantasmagora series would work really really well i had a chance to play test that now four years ago <laughs> at least one of them yeah it's yeah right. I, it's I, for a long time but i, I our first gary con we we play tested like the first and the second and then i think two years ago we missed out on play testing the third well there's in there are and, and they're absolutely wonderful i cannot wait for them to get released there's four okay there's also there's kind of this epic feel to the setting because there's so much that flows together. I mean, you know, at first you're you're dealing with talking animals and a dwarf, and the next thing you know, there's cannon fire, and um, <laughs> yeah, that I was think a little that, jarring. <laughs> yeah, I think that you could draw on a lot of the alternate settings, even just piecemeal, like Tales of the Fallen Empire or uh, you know, Black Powder, Black Magic. So so that you've got firearms from here, you've got pieces from here, because the world is not the traditional fantasy world that we think of, but it's not this high-tech world either. And so there's a lot of little things that you can draw from settings you're not normally using. And I think that's something that I would definitely want to do, because I think the more anachronistic things that you can weave in you know, with, with subtlety and a little bit of skill, not just, just blatantly, but it adds to that dreamlike feel. Okay, so let me get this straight. We went into the tavern and we're talking to this guy, but the guy is actually a bear. Yes, he's a bear. Okay, so we're going to get on our horses and we're going to flee the tavern. And uh, what happens? Okay, well, you're charging towards the enemy and there's a line of cannon. There's a, there, wait, there's a line of cannon? Yes, and uh, and, and they're, they're firing. Wait, wait, there's a line of cannon. Okay, so uh, we're going to go left. It is not what is expected, but in the setting, it's not always what's expected either. And so it, it fits. You're not just throwing players for a loop with information they should have. It's information that even the characters don't always have. And so I think that little bit of, of being able to unveil some surprises really can add to the tone. And then, you know, if you want to set something in the time before time when the Animal Kings existed, you could easily reskin something like Nebin Pendlebrook's Perilous Pantry. I mean, my God, these animals eat. And so, you know, a Perilous Pantry would be right up their alley. I don't know as I would reskin Black <laughs> Death Crawl. Uh, although now I might, you know, just based on what I've been told. But but there's there's other adventures out there that aren't, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's not overarching darkness and some of those could be a lot of fun to use in in that respect to do you know even flashback to that period at brinkman omicon someone's running dungeons and doggos and so it's characters as dogs and that's a concept i've seen before at gen con 
in the long, long ago, where make the characters animals, even if it's just temporary, it'll have an impact on how your players are going to actualize those characters during that session. But if it's done in a campaign, that that carries forward. And so that would be, you know, something like that, again, be perfect. What about you, Jen? Okay, so our very first GaryCon that we went to, I got into an After Hours, I, I think it was like one of the first Doug Cons, and he ran Stout Fellas, where everyone was dwarves, but we all still had to pick a class. So you'd be a dwarven thief or a dwarven warrior, or in my case, I played the lowly dwarfy dwarf. But Brocco is totally a dwarven halfling. Mm. <laughs> he's got the luck to give to his friends. He's got the stealth and, and you know, some of the thieving skills and everything. But I'm like, oh, yeah, the, this guy. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Hole in the Sky really reminded me of the characters first crossing that river. They first crossed the Calyx Day and you had to do exactly what you were told, go in exactly this direction and speak exactly these words, or you might not make it to the other side. And that really reminded me a lot of the very first problem that you have in Hole in the Sky, crossing that long bridge. Oddly enough, Beyond the Black Gate came to mind, Hmm. because I was trying to think of the modules that might come into play where you have some effect on deities and okay yeah legends and deities and maybe you could affect that fate it may be prophesized and it may be in a different land but you are dealing with essentially a god in beyond the black gate and you have evil powers on the other side of the plane trying to stop you one that caught my eye insofar as a setting, was Paul Wolf's Cragbridge, The Cursed Ruin. Mm. And I think this one was out like four or five years ago. Uh, But the ruin and, you know, on on top of Cloudtop Mountain, you've got the hierarchy of all of the powers that be. And just it seemed like something that could really fit in the first place that they, quote unquote, landed after crossing Calyx Day. And the nice setting for it and the problems, you know, there were dwarven surveyors and whatnot. Yeah, a little bit of underground stuff that may or may not go wrong for you. But I thought as far as settings go, you could actually run this story set there. And then I'm going to tie into something else Mark said. The Beastmen. Absolutely the Beastmen. You've got to go back to Harley Stroh's Sailors on the Starless Sea, especially because the end, the end of this book, there is the Watcher, as it is called. Mm. It is the ship that carries you between times and planes. (laughs) I mean, you... Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) It's the perfect ending to your first funnel. Ta-da! Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Well, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's going to bring us, uh, finally, to our DCC feature for the show, which is Primal Tales, issue number one, from Panda Head Woo-hoo. Publishing. Yay! They exist everywhere. Among the common people, they are talked about in quiet tones, half man, half beast. Stories of them are told around campfires and hearths. They inspire curiosity, confusion, and fear. Many call them monsters, some call them heroes. They call themselves primals. 
right off the bat, it's anthropomorphic animals, and our book has an otter smoking a pipe. So that right off the bat, I think we're good. <laughs> really, really, that that's yeah. the tie-in you're going to go with. <laughs> well, no, the I, otter I, smoking that. a pipe. <laughs> Hey, hey. Uh, well, there's in the circle of light, while they, they always just refer to them as an otter and a bear, they do very human things. And in my mind, they really are kind of anthropomorphic. I mean, you know, bear and well, otter smoke a pipe and, and you know, they, they write, they read, they do things that they sit on furniture, they build, you know, they, it's, it's, yeah, frog and toad are friends. <laughs> uh, and, and so there's, there's certainly already an element of that. And, and so I immediately thought of, of Primal Tales. And, and, I mean, and that makes sense. I mean, even as they look at their hands, they're, oh, that's right. I still have human paws. Oh, you. Yeah. <laughs> As they're switching shapes, yeah. And, I mean, for DCC fans that they are like, oh, I don't know, it sounds like a bunch of furry stuff. Well, you know, it's written by Brendan LaSalle and Brett Brooks. From, uh, you're both from Goodman. It includes art by Brad McDevitt. I mean, this is, and it's it's really nice. It's a really nice published piece. Good production value. Yeah, if you've been getting the revived Dam magazines it's the same kind of print quality it's a it's a perfect bound it's a full size and there's not many let's face it how many people are doing full size zines and it's tight the art's good there is a savage warrior class which if i was going to stat up brunelith the uh, bear savage warrior he he might not want to be but he's certainly capable of it and so oh, this see, just... I, I would have done that class for the gorgolax or the warlugs well, and you could do that for pretty much any of them. One of the things that this has is it's got a primal family chart. Mm-hmm. So uh, rather than your birth sign, you know, if, for example, you're an anthropomorphic hedgehog, you've got a natural weapon of a, of a D3 bite, you get heightened senses, and you've got spines that do a point of damage. And, 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 so and for you, heightened senses, if I recall, that allows you to roll one die up the chain. Yes. Um, and for, for the hedgehog, it's one die up for hearing and scent, minus one D for vision. And so there's all these different animals. Um, let me just see. Uh, uh, otter. Claw, 1d4, uh, 30-foot swim, plus 1d2 skill checks. <laughs> okay. Open lock, specifically. So, I mean, any sort of animal that you want to do, even if you don't want to make, e even if you just want them to be a regular class, you want to make a porpoise wizard. Uh, okay, well, <laughs> okay. here's... Here's the, the racial benefits of, of being an anthropomorphic porpoise, and then you can make him a wizard, and, and they've got and that you know, means classes that and you spells. Have, you have human form with anthropomorphic visual qualities, right? You look kind of like this animal, but you're still humanoid. You're generally bipedal, but you're not a person that looks kind of like a zebra. You're a zebra that walks on two legs and has hands. You might wear armor and clothing and things like that. Right. Um, for comic book fans, of course, a perfect example would be uh, Marvel Comics has a character called Tigra, whose life was saved by a race of cat people, and they turned her into a, well... Marvel Comics turned into it. Why, why aren't sexy, we just going full out Thundercats? But. Come on. <laughs> uh, Thunder, yeah, Thundercats <laughs> is, another, is another perfect one. And so what's what's kind of fun is they have their own spell casting class, the Arcasters. And Arcasters, of course, do not find animal familiars because... <laughs> Redundant. That, that yeah, would, that that'd be mean. And so there's uh, there's a spell find spirit familiar, which Ooh. is fantastic for anything. Yeah, there's there's just a lot of really. I like neat the idea that, that you could potentially stat out twenty zero level PCs from this because they've got the the full occupation chart and everything. 
Yeah, and there's so you could play card. this as there's a funnel. A patron, there's monsters associated with the patron. There's patron spells. This is. A- I was actually thinking I could use that family chart as totems. Ooh, interesting. In yeah. a regular DCC game, or if you wanted to add some depth to like uh, the the cavemen in Frozen in Time. Or, you know, well, well, we follow the tiger totem. So, okay, we follow tiger totem. And so this is the benefit of that. I th- or if you if you end up playing reverse sailors where you are the beast men. Yeah. Okay. 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 I, I, I might be brought on board for this one. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, Primal Tales was released at, at FurryCon initially. Uh, it was available at Gen Con. And, and sold there out. Is, yeah. And in some circles, there is a, a certain stigma to the words furry or uh, anthropomorphic animals. But this is... This is fantastic. It is a great toolkit to draw from, even if you don't want to use primals. But the primal concept is really good. And if you just take it a step further, if otter and bear are are primals, then just give them the ability to blend to look like humans. Maybe that's why they're talked about in hushed tones and nobody really knows that much about them. Nice. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much here to draw on. I would challenge any judge to pick up this first issue, which is what? like 38 pages and not find something you can use at your table even if it is just taking the monsters or taking the spells 10 bucks this is really really and it's a quarterly if i recall i think so i know the second issue at gen con they were talking about the second issue was essentially done i think they were just doing they were waiting on a little bit of art for it but yeah the the first well Probably not. Well, let's see. May, June, July. Yeah, we're beyond quarterly since the first one's April 2018, but it is probably intended to be a quarterly. And, yeah, it's, it's it's good that these folks are working on it because it's a side project, but it's also Brendan and other folks. Yeah, and it, it's a side project, but it's also kind of a passion. Project. I, I love that it came out at FurryCon because that's one of those things that when Good Me Games was requested to go there, it was like, what's the intersection here? But <laughs> but Brendan and and of course uh, Brett have really you know, made that this is like an evolution of that, which is, is kind of a fun thing to see. So, well, and you know, uh, another particular podcast that may or may not be named later just did a, a show on inclusion and inclusion within fandom is mm-hmm. just as important, I think. And this is a, an inclusive and very useful product. And yeah, I, I love it. I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Jen, did you have any other thoughts on it? It's cool. I wish Brendan would finish X crawl first. <laughs> That's all. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I, and you know, I think I think there's a, a bit of a crossover there too because you know at, at Gen Con they announced DCCX Crawl is going to be coming and that Val Emerson is is writing the zero level adventure for it and she play tested materials for Primal Tales One and if I recall my conversations from Gen Con correctly because uh, I was kind of exhausted I believe she is writing for issue two so uh, okay. it'll get there eventually you'll get yeah. your X Crawl <laughs> okay in the meantime there's other goodness coming though. So. Yeah. And speaking of including fans, how about road crew and convention shoutouts? I'm totally good with that. Judge Jeff has left New York, but DCC carries on out there. Judge Hoy will be at the Brooklyn Strategist running the Portsmouth Mermaid on Sunday, October 7th at 4 p.m. And check the DCC RPG NYC meetup group for it. M. Nixick is running DCC Funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. Game registration has gone live for GameholeCon, happening in Madison, Wisconsin, this November 8th through 11th. As of this recording, there are a few DCC tickets remaining, and I've got to say, 
we, we went to Game Hulkon two years ago, and it was fantastic. And I got to meet DCC judges who I'd never seen in the community before, and they were fantastic. So that's where we met go Val. There. Well, yes, but Val is part of the community. <laughs> uh, but go go forth, go forth, and uh, and meet your people. Judge Joan of Arc Troyer is running an open table every Thursday night from 6 to 10 p.m. at Better World Books in Goshen, Indiana. And she's at Secret Door Games in Elkhart, Indiana, every other Saturday. As an added bonus, Judge Marlene Whitmer is running on alternate Saturdays. Mike Carlson is running open table DCC games on the second and fourth Mondays of the month at Everybody Reads Books and Stuff in Lansing, Michigan. Games start at 6.30. Tim Lawcrest is running DCC at Blank Comics in Florence, Alabama every other Sunday. Next game should be held on October 7th, but check with the store for details. Christian Bird is hosting a regular open game on Tuesdays at the Beer Temple in Chicago. Also in Chicago, Jeff Bernstein tells me his games are still running every Monday at Games Plus. Mm. Plus, it gives you it's an excuse to go to Games Plus. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Mario Garcia runs a weekly DCC game on Thursday evenings at Fun Again Games in Eugene, Oregon. If you want to see your own creations in the DCC community's only free monthly e-zine, keep an eye out for our future topics. We can include your material on the show companion. We'd love to see what you're up to, what you're creating, even if it doesn't match in with our next show. If you're doing something based on Appendix N, we want to see it. We want to include it. We want to get it out there and in front of people. Remember, we have quite a few things in our prize closet of mystery to give away in return for contributions. (laughs) We've got zines, modules, some Appendix N, some non-Appendix N, loose change. You can submit your creations to us at the Hub at sanctum.media or you can find us on the regular social media sites sanctum is on google plus you can continue to ignore us on elo are you running road crew games drop us a line let us know join the guardians of secrets send us your upcoming events for inclusion once you've submitted a few successfully run events you will be inducted into the roles of the guardians of secrets able to enter your events directly onto the calendar and we're getting ready to uh, induct quite a few people into the guardians of secrets and your members are periodically going to receive exclusive items through the tables that last year and this year there were the print issues of the free rpg day companion that they they could print out and give out to their players and there is something coming for christmas that is going to go to our guardians members before it goes to anybody else (laughs) so So just keep that in mind. There are benefits. If you're listening and looking for a game, go to sanctum.media, click on the community events link. We've got the the calendar up with events. You can scroll all the way down for full venue and host judge information. Improvements are coming. Pardon our dice, we're remodeling. In the meantime, if you're enjoying the show, drop us an email, comment on the podcast, chime in on our G Plus page, and please help us by posting a review on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help new listeners find the podcast. They move us up in the metrics, and uh, it's, it's a good thing. So... Be sure to visit us on Google+, mention us on Facebook, wave to Mark on Ello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, 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 thanks for listening. (laughs) Well, you know, this is is now a very, a a very special (laughs) Sanctum Scrub. Any any parting thoughts, Mark, Jen? I'm not sure what you just (laughs) (laughs) made. Book one of four? What? I I, I hate you. (laughs) 
go out and get it. It's it'll be worth your time, especially if you can spend a little time digesting it like Jen and I did. <laughs> <laughs> we hope we've inspired you. Thanks for listening. Good night, everyone. Be inspired. You have been listening to the Sanctum Sacorum podcast. Join us next time when the Sanctum Sephorum opens for Stanley Weinbaum's Martian Odyssey. Sanctum Sacorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2018. <laughs>